We have some huge stories for you this week. It's been a busy week. Uh, But first, a word from our sponsors. Do you live in Northern California? Are you still draining out your backyard lake? Then why don't you consider Gutter? G-U-T-T-R. Gutter, started by two Stanford GSB graduates, only sells the finest in machine learning optimized storm drains. Gutter, we drain away your pain as long as your pain is in the form of too much water. Go to gutter.com slash moderate content for 20% off on your first storm drain purchase. And as a new owner of, of Gutter AI enhanced drainage, I, I have to say it really has made such a difference to my daily experience. Excellent. Hello and welcome to Moderated Content's weekly news update from the world of trust and safety with myself, Evelyn Doek, and Alex Stamos. We have some huge stories for you this week. It's been a busy week. Uh, but first, I actually haven't seen this get as much coverage as it should because this is a huge story and it goes back to the old theme that we have on this podcast, which is that India is by far the most important jurisdiction that people should be watching in terms of the future of online speech. So over the weekend, uh, the Indian government ordered YouTube and Twitter to take down videos and over 50 tweets uh, about a BBC documentary that is critical of Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Now, the series addresses the 2002 riots in the Western Indian state of Gujarat, and Modi was the chief minister at the time, and it was uh, nearly 800 Muslims and over 250 Hindus died in the riots, and the documentary basically is highly critical of Modi's governance during the time and what he did or didn't do to stop it. This has not been subtle. Uh, India has used its new powers under the uh, new 2021 IT rules that gives the ministry the authority to take down posts that it deems threatens the unity, integrity, defense, security, or sovereignty of India or friendly relations with foreign states or public order. So you can see how many extremely broad terms are there. Pick your favorite. And again, the ministry was not subtle about this. So the advisor to the ministry was tweeting about this. It was very open that the reason why this documentary has been taken down is because it is hostile propaganda and anti-India garbage. It, quote, lacks objectivity and reflects the BBC's colonial mindset. And both YouTube and Twitter have complied with directions. So this is uh, this is scary stuff. Alex, what's your headline reaction to this? Yeah, this is a, a huge deal. Governments have been trying to censor social media for as long as social media has existed. And we have had like a long history of governments sending orders for, for companies to take content down. This whole podcast is, is about that conflict and the fact that this is a conflict that's been going on for years, but has really intensified over the last two, three years. Uh, often when companies have complied, they've tried to comply in a way that is minimally impactful. Uh, so the traditional way of doing this is to only block content on an IP basis to the location in which the order comes from. It is also to resist until you're absolutely forced to. Um, I remember when I was at Facebook, we were facing a lot of issues with the, the Thai junta using the law to try to take stuff down as, uh, in, in their eyes, insulting the king, but really just content calling for democracy. And the way Facebook handled it was to resist, resist, resist to fight it in court until there was like a final court order. And we were on the verge of staff in Thailand being arrested, in which case then it was just geoblocked in Thailand, right? So in the end, governments have sovereignty, they have power, they have the ability to send people with guns to arrest your employees. But what you can do is you can make it really hard for them. I don't see any evidence of either YouTube or Twitter making it hard for India in this case. Now, some of the tweets are still up to their credit. So it's not totally 
really clear how Twitter is complying. Twitter might be doing geo-blocking. YouTube has just completely pulled the video. And this is a big deal. It's a big deal because there's there's no cover here, right? Like often you have governments try to like, and it go sideways at this. They're just straight up saying this thing is critical of our prime minister. We do not like it. We want it gone and it's gone. And so I, I think this was, I really want to see comment from YouTube because I think this is a very cowardly act by Google, especially. And it, it does go right to when we talk about Twitter, the exact challenge that Musk is going to face and that India, India currently bans sales of Tesla's. Elon has been trying really hard to open up the Indian market. That conversation with Modi is definitely going to be intertwined with the conversation of how well is Twitter complying with these kinds of censorship requests. So, you know, back to uh, the Twitter files. Uh, if you're concerned about government censorship, this is absolutely something you should be 100% concerned about because this is not subtle or, you know, jawboning. This is a straight up legal order from a democracy to say, take down a BBC documentary. This is not some kind of crazy person writing this, some stalker who's stalking Modi or, or doxing Modi. The BBC did a documentary on Modi and they got it censored. To me, this is a huge sea change. This is a big, big deal. And I think we're, we're totally right to bring it up. And I, I hope it gets more discussion because to me, this is as big as NetCG with Germany, where the Germans broke the seal on getting Facebook and other companies to do what they want from a hate speech law. India just being able to censor YouTube like that is a huge deal. Right. We've been forecasting the battle between India v. platforms for a long time. And this is this is it. Like this is the quintessential fact set that you would want. This is a, a BBC right. documentary, as you said, highly researched, incredibly reputable about political facts. It is, uh, you know, a, a historical documentary. This is as core free speech, important to democracy as it gets. And the order is as unambiguous as it gets. Um, and the compliance has been as unambiguous as it gets. So this should be a huge thing. And I hope that there's lots of conversation about it. I hope, as you say, this is Musk's moment to talk about his free speech credentials and where he draws the line. And I also hope we see some comments from the governments here, uh, the UK government, the US government. This is not something that actually should just be left to, to platforms themselves. This is a geopolitical crisis um, and right. and so it's something that they should be talking about. Although, as I think we're about to discuss, the UK government doesn't have a lot of legs to stand on here when it comes to internet censorship. Very true. Uh, and we we will we will definitely... Uh, That's what we call a soft pitch here in the industry, uh, Evelyn. So, yes, let's jump then to the online safety bill uh, that the UK is um, pushing through government at the moment. We're not going to do a deep dive on it right now because this has been moving so fast. There has been so many twists and turns. Every time I have tried to get up to date on what's happening with the online safety bill, they cut a massive part out of it or add another massive part into it. But I do think it's something that everyone should want on their radar. And there have been some big developments in the last week or so. So this is a bill that has been in the hopper for years. And it was unclear whether with the new government it would be moving forward. And it's clear now that it is. And in the last week, the bill, there's been added criminal liability for tech executives for the threat of a two-year jail sentence if they persistently ignore Ofcom, the, the media regulator's enforcement notices, telling them that they have breached their duty of care to children. And even more chillingly, one of the offences that has been added to the list of illegal content that platforms must proactively prevent, <laughs> repeat, proactively prevent from reaching users is video footage that shows people crossing the channel in small boats in a positive light. So the fear here, says the culture secretary, is that posting positive videos of crossings could be aiding and abetting immigration offences. I mean, this is 
the country of Orwell really doing him proud with this one. Yeah. Lest you thought the online safety bill was about the safety of children online, here we have, again, just straight up political censorship, that you have a conservative government that does not like immigrants crossing the channel. You can argue back and forth on that, but it is certainly a discussion that needs to happen on the safety of migrants. How do you have an immigration policy, the relationship of the UK to Europe, all incredibly complicated issues. And, you know, you just have Ofcom come in from the corner and, and jump off and say, you know, can't be any YouTube videos that are at all positive about migrants on boats. It's completely totally ridiculous. If anybody, you know, I've been somewhat disappointed in a bunch of American advocates who have been really cheering on the Brits because, you know, you continuously have this situation where people just want to stick it to the tech companies. And anything that anything that's bad for big American tech companies must be good overall and not think about, well, maybe these countries, including democracies, including allies of the United States, have ulterior motives that are not completely pure. Uh, and here's a great example of that. that now that doors opened that the UK can censor arbitrary content um, and they have the tools in place to do so, there's nothing that keeps them from just adding stuff, adding stuff, adding stuff to that list. And perhaps I think this is what you and I should dive into. We probably should get like a, a UK speech lawyer. It would be interesting to hear about how much of this does Parliament have to do and how much can Ofcom just make a decision? Is this the kind of thing that Ofcom can just decide based upon, you know, let's say there's a terrorist attack and they just decide that anything that takes the terrorist side in any way is possibly, or anything that talks about the failings of the government to stop the terrorist attack, you know, that's where you get to Modi-level censorship, and the UK is definitely on the way. Yeah, we will definitely be uh, following this much more closely as it as it goes forward. As I understand it, the bill is now going to go through a lengthy journey through the House of Lords, and so this isn't over yet, and we will keep track of it. But yes, Ofcom is going to be enormously empowered, and uh, Ofcom feels like the, the the perfect name for an agency um, that <laughs> with I, such I mean, speech power. Orwell, Orwell yeah. definitely could have put uh, Ofcom could definitely have been in 1984. It's great. It's catchy. Um, and the House of Lords, that famous body of libertarians and rabble rousers. There's actually one Lord who I think is going to be fighting this, but he might be very, very lonely. Sir Richard, uh, you know, who I used to work with at, at Facebook, the Lord of Hallam, I, I am hope is uh, going to be able to, to fight this a little bit. We have all of the recipes for a great Hollywood movie at some point, though. Sir Richard standing up for online speech alone in the House of Lords. Okay. In other breaking news, AI is not magic. There was a pretty good story in the time this week about OpenAI, um, which is the creator of ChatGBT, the AI text generator that has taken the world by storm. We've talked about it at length on this podcast before. Uh, and it dove into the human continent moderators that they employ in Africa. And one of the reasons why I think this is an interesting story to cover is the, the reaction has been a little amazing to me. People are kind of surprised that ChatGPT, which people have been um, pleasantly surprised is is not as racist or as terrible as it, it is often feared to be and as many of these tools often end up being. And it turns out the reason is not because AI has developed a heart and sense of morality in the last year or so, but because the company has been really proactive in investing in trust and safety from the start. And that often means or almost always means humans because AI cannot yet do trust and safety work by itself. So of course, ChatGPT relies on human moderators. Now, there are all sorts of trade-offs with this that we're going to 
to talk about. And I think this is something that I wish people talked about more um, because often these conversations happen in isolation with each other, which is what, on the one hand, AI is really terrible at content moderation. It doesn't understand context. We need more humans in the loop. And on the other hand, wow, this is really horrific, terrible, scarring, <laughs> psychologically damaging work that we are you know, asking people to stare at the worst of the internet all day, every day. Now, <laughs> another important part of this story is that these workers uh, often work in terrible conditions. They're paid $2 an hour. They aren't offered psychological support that they would need. And that's a really important low-hanging fruit for, for fixing this problem. But the problem is kind of intractable in understanding uh, the trade-offs here between trust and safety and human moderators. But curious for your thoughts, Alex. OpenAI, like we talked about last week, has been of these companies, I think, the most proactive in trying to think about how their platforms can be abused and then coming up with protections for that. But in the end, just like with content moderation, the people who might want to abuse machine learning models are incredibly creative. And we've seen that with ChatGPT, where you can say things like pretend you're a racist or pretend that you know, write a simulation of what people would say if they thought these things. And OpenAI has been very quick to respond to those things. And now we know one of the reasons why is they have this content moderation center of people who are looking at all this stuff, probably have the ability, I expect the model has the ability that if it if it's given something that it does not detect as being out of bounds, but is somewhat sketchy, that it puts that in a queue and then a human being goes and makes a decision for the AI of whether or not it's policy violated or not. But in the end, you're going to have to have a bunch of people look at both the requests and the output and then decide whether or not they're inside of open AI's policies. This comes at an interesting time because the other thing we've seen over the last couple of months is a real kind of creation of a culture war around AI ethics. So it, it took a while for content moderation to get to the culture war perspective where somebody's kind of position on bigger political issues is uh, determined whether or not they're pro-content moderation existing. For a long time, people argued about content moderation, but the basic assumption was it was something you had to do. We've really kind of short-circuited this on AI ethics. You've had Sam Lesson, uh, who's a, a prominent uh, investor, uh, used to work at Facebook, and a number of other people talking about how AI ethics is effectively unethical itself, that they're kind of arguing if you hold back the development of AI and machine learning because of your concerns over racism or impacts or other kinds of issues, you're doing something unethical. So we're kind of entering into this cycle, I think, much quicker than we did when talking about speech moderation on large platforms. The content moderation wars come to every technology. This will be a recurring cycle. My research agenda is secure. There is no escaping content moderation debates. It also comes at an interesting time because a lot of these uh, contractors are, are pulling out, including the contractor, in, in this case, Sama, in Africa. It, time also reported last week that it is shutting down as Meta's third-party contractor and is moving away from policing harmful content because it's so fraught and it's now a defendant in a lawsuit because of the way that it, it treats its employees. But Summer may get out of it, but we are not getting out of it. This problem is not going away. So uh, something to watch. Quick update on a story that we have talked about a couple of weeks ago about the RNC's complaints about Google's spam filters. The Republican National Committee alleges that Google's spam filter is biased against it because more Republican emails go to, go to spam. The Federal Election Commission this week tossed out 
complaints uh, from the RNC saying that Google has credibly supported its claim that its spam filter is in place for commercial reasons and thus did not constitute a contribution within the meaning of the Federal Election Campaign Act. Um, So this is not an illegal in-kind contribution. It's the right decision. It's clearly the right decision. This is a weird situation. The RNC is still suing Google um, over this, which is a lawsuit we've talked about before. Google also has set up this other program that it has for for registering um, political emails uh, and the RNC has not signed up to that program. So this is really culture war stuff. The FEC clearly came out the right way here, but I don't think we're going to see the end of these complaints. Yeah. And I hope Google holds fast here. You know, there is this discussion of them settling effectively of coming up with a deal where Democratic and Republican Party operatives can get spam delivered. You know, anybody who's ever given five bucks to a candidate, then you get notified every time somebody runs for dog catcher in Podunk County, Arizona, to go raise money for them. Um, so I, I do hope Google continues to take a, a pro-consumer line here and stand up against what is effectively political blackmail by very powerful people who want to bypass spam and have the ability to regulate Google. And speaking of spam from political candidates, Donald Trump has been in the news again this week in his about his social media accounts. The Rolling Stone has reported that he and his campaign are laying the groundwork to return to the major social media platforms. It's been uh, peaceful and quiet over there recently, but one of the reasons that that may have been was a exclusivity term that Trump had with his platform Truth Social that required him to post first to Truth Social before posting the content to other platforms. Uh, that deal is up in June. June, and the uh, Rolling Stone is reporting that he has absolutely no interest in renewing the deal and is uh, accepting ideas for the big return and his first tweet back on Twitter. So, Alex, any ideas how he should make his uh, glorious comeback? <laughs> yeah, I mean it. it- this is it boggles the mind of the the opportunity he has and it is actually an interesting question of what he's optimizing for here clearly he no longer sees truth social as a way of making a lot of money right like um and so you know i, I think a lot of questions about trump these days are is he actually seriously running for president again, or is it just a big grift? Because I think your decisions of what you would do in these situations is actually quite different depending on what your motivation is. In this case, I think the big question for him is whether he's going to be let back onto Facebook. And so now we've created a deadline by which if Facebook does not make a decision, they have effectively made a decision. It's also probably a good reason for them to punt until after this, because it would be interesting to see if he comes back on Twitter if he jumps and posts on Twitter before he's back fully on Facebook, that will give them a good indication of, of the kind of risk they're taking if they turn it back on. Yeah, this is like the world's highest stake marshmallow test. Um, if Trump can just hold on until June and not tweet, he can return to social media without being sued for breaching his exclusivity term and also may get reinstated. His chances of getting reinstated to Meta might be better because he hasn't tweeted something so obviously you know, terrible that it would scare them off from, from making that decision. So, right. yeah. If I think of somebody who would pass the marshmallow test, it would be Donald J. Trump. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm sure that there is footage of him as a toddler just ignoring that marshmallow and waiting for the greater rewards in his future. Good story from Forbes about TikTok this week. So Forbes reported that there's a secret button uh, at TikTok that allows staff to handpick specific videos and supercharge those videos' distribution. The practice is known internally as heating, and it pushes them out to a certain number of views. One of the big differences between this and what happens on other platforms is it's completely unlabeled. So this doesn't say, you know, promoted post or, you know, you're seeing this because XYZ liked it, as you might see on on many tweets these days, especially now with the For You feed. But it just 
turns up more in in your feed. And now, you know, one of the things that TikTok has often advertised is how good its algorithm is at working out exactly what you want and how, you know, sort of democratic it is. Anyone can go viral. And it turns out that there is, um, for at least some portion of what people are viewing, uh, this hand-picked way of pushing out these videos. It, of course, is open to abuse. There's obviously no, I mean, the big concern that your, your mind jumps to is that the CCP is using this for political purposes. Forbes didn't have any evidence of that. But there were people using it to heat their own or their spouse's accounts to try and get more views. So um, happy anniversary, honey. I got you 3 million views. So this is not a good look. No. Another huge scoop for Emily Baker White, who has some incredible source inside TikTok. For those of you who missed it, she's the Forbes reporter that TikTok then utilized another secret button that allowed their internal audit department to try to track her by IP address, to try to find who her sources were in case she was physically meeting with them and on the same network. Turns out she was not discouraged by the the idea that Chinese employees were stalking her using PII. She is right back at it. The other funny thing about TikTok is with all this stuff, it just feels like they read all of the coverage of tech companies from 2017 to 2022. And every time there was kind of an overblown claim of an American tech company doing something kind of obviously evil, instead of like, oh, we should avoid that, they put that on a list of product features they should build, right? Like people have always thought like that, you know, Facebook or, or Google or whomever is just arbitrarily uprating people's content because they like it or they like the person or the person paid them off. There's always these crazy conspiracy theories of my hated person on YouTube is paying off Google somehow to get their ranking up and mine down. And TikTok just decides, oh, that's a fantastic idea. Let's build that as a product feature. And then apparently have no auditing of it. So people could just do it for their, you know, their spouses having dances on TikTok that they can all of a sudden uh, make them go viral. So yeah, not a good look from TikTok. And like you said, what would make it a much more serious would be if there was a demonstrated political issue in which this got used. Right now, there's no data of it, but I also don't know how we would we'd be able to know at this point. Yeah, uh, it really has been a bad run for TikTok. Like, oh, no, 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 we would never use your personal uh, data to, to do bad things, except to track reporters. And oh, no, 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 we would never use our algorithms to, to promote anything, except for when we really, really want to. So it is, it, they're having a, a rough time. And, you know, uh, they, they've been promising more transparency about all of this stuff. So let's see if that comes to fruition. All right, to our courtroom corner segment. I haven't obtained a sound effect for this yet. I don't know. Do you want to pick one random one, Alex? Let's see what we've got. All right, so the breaking news this morning is that the Supreme Court has punted on the net choice cases. So these are the cases we've talked about uh, at length on this is podcast, including um, a longer episode with Daphne Keller and Genevieve Lakia. These are blockbuster cases. They arise out of Texas and Florida with social media laws passed there that would place significant constraints on platforms' ability to do content moderation. Uh, These are First Amendment challenges to these laws, and the TLDR on them is that they could be the most important First Amendment cases in a a generation, basically, the way that they could transform the way we think about free speech and the government's power to regulate companies like social media platforms. And the the Supreme Court is widely expected to take this case because the two sets of Court of Appeals reached different conclusions on the Texas and Florida laws. But today, this morning, the court invited the Solicitor General of the Biden administration to file a brief with the views of the federal government. As Steve Vladek put it on Twitter, a professor from Texas Law School, uh, sometimes the court calls for the views of the Solicitor General because it's genuinely interested in what the DOJ has to say. And sometimes it does so just to hit the pause button on cases it knows that it's going to grant cert in, and this is the latter. So this is the kid trying to just stay up just a little bit longer before going to bedtime, just sort of asking questions uh, to put off the um, inevitable decision. So, you know, this, this case will 
most likely uh, be decided by the Supreme Court, but now it looks like we have a few months before before they take it up. One of the reasons could be because the court wants to get Gonzalez and Tumna out of the way. Uh, these are the two Section 230 cases, but who knows um, why the court is doing this. Um, but, you know, this is good news for Evelyn, uh, who is uh, has been struggling <laughs> to keep up with all of the legal news. Um, and so I know that this is what all of our listeners were most concerned about. Evelyn is very happy for her work-life balance from this decision from the court this morning. <laughs> so I guess this means there's not the opportunity for them to have the most hilarious outcome possible, which was to both say you're completely liable as a platform for all the speech, you know, strictly liable for everything, and you're required never to take it down, which would effectively be both ridiculous and then also could destroy the entire internet industry in the United States. Alex, that but- is absolutely still possible. A ye of little okay, faith. The, the court can definitely still do that. Um, it just will do it over a slightly longer time frame rather than making both decisions on the same day. So Gonzalez v. Google could definitely still come out that platforms are liable for amplifying content, and the NetChoice cases could still come out six months later saying, oh, and also you have to keep up a whole bunch of content. So that world is, is still in our future. Good luck, platform lawyers. In Gonzalez updates, nearly 50 amicus briefs were filed last week in support of Section 230 in the Supreme Court. These are friends of the court briefs where third parties can file arguments giving their point of view. Now, I did not spend my entire weekend uh, reading all 50 amicus briefs. I apologize, listeners, but I did flick through some of them. Some of my favorites were from Reddit, where there were moderators from the subreddit R Equestrian and R Halaku, um, which is focused on horse people, horse lovers, and fans of equestrian sports, and the other focused on a specific field of computer science and a particular rock band. So these are moderators uh, who are very concerned about the effects that the ruling might have on daily internet users, daily mods on, on Reddit for whom recommendations are important an important thing. Yelp's brief is basically like our entire business model depends on being able to make recommendations. Um, if you do this, we're destroyed. Uh, Senators Wyden and, and, and Cox, who drafted Section 230, also filed a brief saying, we were there. We know why Congress enacted Section 230 and targeted recommendations were absolutely uh, supposed to be covered by the law. Meta also weighed in saying, you know what, we use algorithms to help enforce against terrorism and yeah. uh, not just uh, to promote terrorism. It's actually a really important thing to amplify the content that you see. It has this lovely passage in there where it talks about how countless people have met their spouses, tracked down lost relatives, secured new jobs, taken up new hobbies, donated to new causes and started businesses, found solace with others, and even established new religious or spiritual movements owing to services like Facebook. New religious and spiritual movements uh, sometimes includes QAnon, but you know, good for them uh, <laughs> putting this positive spin on it. But that might be, you know, for the Supreme Court, the fact that Facebook's the home of QAnon might be a positive. <laughs> yep. It is interesting to see that like a lot of these amicus, like, they are extremely explicit in kind of uh, appealing to the conservative supermajority. I, I thought... Uh, you know, specifically talking about like, if you do this, we won't be able to take down terrorist content. If you give us this liability, we will have to censor conservatives effectively. Like they said everything, but if you like Glenn Beck, you cannot vote for this because we are not going to be responsible for Glenn Beck's crazy rantings. You know, th- these are definitely different briefs than you would have seen five years ago. Right. right. Yeah. Arguing before the Supreme Court right now is exactly a matter of strategy and, and, and knowing your audience. And in some of these cases, it's actually, you know, 
uh, tricky because you you also want to try like if you think um, as as some people do that you've already lost two conservatives potentially just justices Thomas and Alito, then you also still need to pick up some liberals. So you're having to try and sort of walk that tightrope of of trying to play both sides. But who who are the swing votes on this? Is it Roberts and Gorsuch? Do you think? I mean, one maybe of the, Kavanaugh. Yeah, I mean, one of the weird things about the politics around these issues right now is it's it's totally not clear, and we don't know, for example, what what Justice Barrett thinks about any of this. Like, we just have absolutely no idea. So that is both positive in the sense that this may not just split exactly down party lines, but also terrifying because anything could happen in these cases. And finally, some quick follow-ups to, in our everything is content, so everything is content moderation corner. Turns out we talked about Leo Messi's win, not only of the World Cup title, but also of the title of most likes on Instagram. And it turns out that this is an instance of coordinated, authentic behavior. It was not a totally natural, organic circumstance, but a fan had encouraged others to like Messi's posts and, crucially, in order to claim the title, to unlike the picture of the egg that had previously held the title of the most liked Instagram picture. So sad day for the egg, but a a beautiful moment for Messi fans. Except Messi's fans are now claiming the egg is flopping by throwing itself on the field and saying it got (laughs) fouled. So uh, the yellow card for Messi's fans on this one. Yeah, it's really got yolk on its face there. Thank you. We'll be here all week, <laughs> yeah, <folks>. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> lucky you. And f- final story is, you know, in something totally unsurprising, uh, the Taliban are spending $8 to get a blue badge on their Twitter accounts now that the verified marks are open for purchase, which totally unsurprising. But then the Daily Beast reported that Twitter is apparently quietly removing the marks from Taliban representatives. I don't even know what to say. Like, I don't even know what blue check marks mean anymore. They mean some version of we paid $8 and we're verified, but also Twitter doesn't dislike us enough or isn't getting enough bad headlines to remove our uh, our blue check marks. So. I, I think there's only one thing we can say about this. <laughs> Once again, Musk's theory here is that content moderation is bad until he has to do it. And he is once again recreating all of the decisions companies have made, but doing so publicly and in a vacillating back and forth. In this case, like you said, the only thing we can prove a blue check mark is that you have eight bucks. We have examples of spammers buying them. You've had a bunch of fake accounts that pretend to be very important people buying blue check marks. It has been exactly the disaster that everybody told him it was going to be. And in this case, they're actually acting against the Taliban. I mean, I think there's an interesting an interesting question here is how does the blue check mark thing interact with the sanctioned uh, individuals and organizations lists that the U.S. government maintains. You know, this has been a a super controversial thing of can you provide free internet services to the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, to a sanctioned individual in Russia, but certainly you probably can't take eight bucks and then give them something of value. So I I wonder if that's also something that's leading in here is the variety of sanctions that the Taliban still find themselves under because there's actually money changing hands, that that's one of the complicating factors. Yeah, we're having these massive Supreme Court arguments about whether slightly amplifying, uh, you know, videos unintentionally is a recommendation that falls outside Section 230. And meanwhile, Twitter's just handing out blue check marks to to verified Taliban leaders for money, yeah, for money. right? Like, <laughs> exactly. Please take your blood money, convert it into Bitcoin, yeah. <laughs> and send it to this address. I, it's also kind of funny because it's like if Cat Turd Two was a fan of the Taliban, then there would already be a big back and forth of uh, Musk saying that's concerning. I'll look into it, but because it is a group that is not doesn't have a lot of supporters in the United States. That's not happening. I think this will get much more fascinating when you have group, like the QAnon folks and stuff getting 
blue check marks under pseudonyms uh, because, you know, the kind of alt-right people that Musk has been really taking his cues from are going to defend them even when the trust and safety team wants to take him down because they're being related to, you know, a lot of real world harm off the platform. Excellent. There's a little teaser for something we will no doubt be discussing in future episodes. We joked last week about doing a weather segment in space of a sports segment to, to close out the episode. But, you know, now that the rain is passed, I don't know if it's really fair to just subject everyone else around the country to a reminder that it is sunny, temperate and blue skies here in the Bay Area. So it is still beautiful in the Bay Area, but that's not a reason why not to buy from Gutter. Gutter, we drain away your pain. Gutter. <laughs> so long as that pain is too much water. <laughs> Gutter.com yeah. slash moderating content. This product does not promise to drain away any pain that is not related specifically to too much water in your roof. Okay. And with that, this has been your episode of moderated content for the week. Uh, actually, we have one more episode coming uh, later this week uh, with the trust and safety team and policy people from Zoom, um, the platform. So look out for that in your feeds on Thursday. This show is available in all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and show notes are available at law.stanford.edu forward slash moderated content. This episode wouldn't be possible without the research and editorial assistance of John Perino, policy analyst at the Stanford Internet Observatory, and it is produced by Brian Pelletier. Special thanks also to Alyssa Ashdown, Justin Fu, and Rob Huffman. See you next week.